I can't help but laugh to myself here about this idea that like, you know, eventually you'll have some like form on a website where it's like make NBA betting prediction and you'll click a button and then it comes back with you should, you know, bet on this particular outcome. But in the background, Jerry Seinfeld, Safe Bet Sam and Lucky Maverick are having this like chat and that is the future of AI and computing. Like that could potentially be the future. So Chris, this week we got our first glimpse into what might be GPT-5 from OpenAI thanks to an interview Sam Altman did on Bill Gates' new podcast, Tales from the Island. Sorry, it's actually called <laughs> Unconfuse Me. And on the episode, Sam Altman talked about how customization in GPT-5 and future GPTs will be really important. And he predicted in the next two years, multimodality would get better. They would eventually incorporate video, I assume as input and output. And also it would become better at reasoning, its reasoning ability, which I think for people that listen to this show often and people that work with AI understand that the AI being able to go off and reason and come back with an informed answer is really important to the future of these models. He also talked about customizability, being able to have different styles for your GPT, using your own data. So it being able to interact with maybe your email, your calendar. And he also cited how you like to book appointments. And what was really interesting about all this is we had a tweet from someone who's leaked some pretty reliable leaks before around what OpenAI is up to saying GPT-5 in April, June at the latest, GPT-4.5 in a few weeks, possibly as early as next week, alpha model. What are your thoughts? Well, we did the right thing getting in the podcasting industry because they just have unlimited news for us coming out. Just you just even just then you like weeks. I'm like, all right, great, that sounds good. <laughs> Up and coming. Maybe the 50th episode special will be uh, maybe like a GPT five, GPT four point five. Yeah, we'll be up to like iPhone version numbers soon at this rate. I love the comment though someone made on uh, on Twitter about the the customization of the of the gpt5 they're like another wave of death for rapper startups yeah <laughs> the the thing that i've been thinking through is you know like obviously a lot of these are just the things that the developer community and the community at large has has really wanted i think most notably for me is just this idea with gpt5 that maybe it's better at grounding better at task planning it has less hallucinations. Those are really the things that I think need to be improved or are the most important aspects of thinking through what to focus on in a new model. They seem to be the biggest limitations when working with the technology right now. Yeah, the thing I'd really like to see is an act actually a better interface for prompts. One of the things I've noticed is that there's so much work that goes into getting all of the different things you want in a prompt. And most sophisticated applications of large language models require you to have sort of data, rules and instructions, a conversation that's happened so far, maybe some memories, some stuff that comes from a RAG system. And then you've got to arrange all of those and then tell the AI the relative importance of each piece of information and what it can be used for. And I think back to when I used to do, like just for fun, assembly language programming 
um, and they used to have sections like this section's for code, this section's for data, this section's for whatever. And I just can't help but wonder that a better interface for prompts would be really good where you can actually in, tell the AI like this bit is the memory, this bit has been looked up from a RAG system, this bit, well, they already have the bit that's the conversation, but actually uh, a more structured approach to prompting that I think would yield better results. Yeah, so I guess what you're saying is a more consistent input format for the 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 prompt where it expects some of these inputs like the memory or, or previous parts of the conversation. Exactly, yeah. And I'm not saying that from the, the respect of I understand fully how they're trained and that would be possible. You just asked me what would my wish list be and that would be it because I, I as much as I like the idea of prompting as an art form, sometimes when you're trying to get things done it would and, and get consistent output, it would be dice to say, okay, I'm filling in these, these parameters in the correct way and I'm getting a correct response rather than sort of having to finesse it into exactly what you want and just hoping you get the right output yeah i think that the the challenge with a lot of the sort of agent like tasks or instruction following as well is it just absolutely losing the plot after a while i mean we saw that in early examples with the the sort of automated gpts like very early on i was experimenting around with can this thing just keep rapidly improving itself so you you start out with a say a python file that's a an app and just get it to keep coding itself over and over and almost all of those projects like auto gpt is a good example they go you know haywire after a while and they're also incredibly expensive experiments which are not fun when you have to pay the bill yes and i also think it could help with hallucinations because sometimes when you're running a um running a prompt through a model, you're referring to a piece of data, like rewrite this piece of text or analyze this block of data. And then say the block of data is just missing because your program just hasn't put it in for whatever reason. Generally in those scenarios, the large language models will hallucinate and just make something up, right? Whereas if it was more structured in the way that it was referred to, it would say, hey, the information wasn't there. I can't make an assessment. And I had this example just today in one of the things we'll talk about later with Autogen Studio, where I was trying to get it to make predictions. It didn't have the data and it, it confidently gave me answers, even though it didn't. Yeah. So it just has this natural tendency to absolutely make stuff up, which is, I think the, the problem with that, right, is like, you just start losing confidence in it, especially at the end user level. You're like, well, if this thing's making things up and not being grounded in some truth, then, you know, you stop trusting it immediately and, and move on. Yeah. And my point isn't that like, we all know about hallucinations and everybody knows how to get around them now by providing different rules to the AI and ways for it to verify that it's actually uh, working from known data and not just making stuff up. You can do that. My point is that um, what I would like to see in future models is ways that that's just part of the system rather than you having to every single time consider all of the things that can go wrong. So Microsoft this week announced Copilot Pro. And I'll bring that up on the screen now for those watching. It says bringing the full power of Copilot to more people and businesses. Now, everyone would recall they renamed the... I think it was called Bing Chat. Now I've even forgotten Bing Chat to 
Copilot, which was slightly confusing because everything across Microsoft and the landscape now is called Copilot. But what they have released is a, a paid Copilot Pro. So before, if you're a large organization, you could roll out thousands of seats. I think the minimum buy-in was like 3,000 seats and get early access to Copilot in Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Outlook, OneNote, all the Microsoft 365 family of products. But now individuals can also pay for Copilot Pro and you can subscribe to Copilot Pro for $20 USD per month per user, which is very similar to the concept of a chat GPT plus subscription. They say though that the major benefit of this is you get access to Copilot across the uh, Microsoft 365 personal uh, suite of tools. So that again, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Outlook, You'll have priority access to the latest models. Um, they say starting today, a uh, OpenAI's GPT-4 Turbo will be available, even though that like that's already kind of available on the free version as well. They're just saying in peak times, you'll get consistent access to it. You also get a hundred boosts per day in their AI image creation and image creator from uh, their designer product, which is essentially like a Canva clone. Uh, and so, yeah, it doesn't, if you're in the Microsoft ecosystem, maybe this sort of resonates with you. I'm not sure if you have a chat GPT plus subscription, why on earth you would even consider this unless you were just deeply embedded um, in Microsoft. But the most interesting thing that was called out is they said, you know, very soon here, you'll have access to building your own co-pilot GPTs. So the, the implementation looks almost identical to the GPT paradigm uh, with the GPT store from ChatGPT. Uh, and it looks like on Copilot, uh, they'll also have these GPTs that, that you know people can build and roll out. But right now it says coming soon, but that is a feature of that new paid plan. So I'm just not Probably sure. The, yeah, but I think the biggest factor there is the fact that People trust Microsoft. Microsoft has all the security certifications. They're working within that ecosystem. The, the GPTs being able to be deployed in that environment will open it up into that corporate space where people can legitimately use them with confidence. Um, whereas right now, there's no way they're going to go over and make their fortune-telling widget on GPTs and then deploy it in their organization. I think, though, what I find odd here is that you've got Microsoft Copilot Pro on one side, you've got ChatGPT Plus on the other. You've now got that new business plan they introduced last week for Teams where you can share GPTs amongst your team uh, and, you know, do pretty much identical stuff, right? The only difference here being that you can access Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Outlook, and OneNote. But then on the other hand, you've got Sam Altman with his vision for GPT-5 and the future of ChatGPT being able to access email calendar and helping you book appointments. So I'm just not like, it's like Microsoft's kind of already doing this stuff with Microsoft Copilot Pro. They already have the hooks, as you say, into the business and where your data is and where you're creating things and, and where your email is. And I'm not saying they're the only ones. You've got obviously like Google as well um, has, has these hooks as, as well, but do you like if this is Sam Altman's vision for the future of GPT-5, being able to access your calendar and email and connect your ecosystem? Like, isn't Microsoft Copilot already kind of doing this now? 
Yeah, it's an odd it's an odd relationship because on one hand they're announcing forthcoming features and like you say, Microsoft sort of already has them in a way. Also, you can actually run OpenAI's models faster if you use Azure um, than you can with OpenAI themselves. And I know this definitively through Sim Theory that um, if you go direct to OpenAI, you don't get as reliable experience nor as fast experience as if you go through Azure. And I noticed in this press release and this information that they repeatedly mentioned speed. They said GPT Turbo faster, faster image creation. And if you look at my main experience, which is using GitHub Copilot, which I assume is sort of an extension of the same thing now, it's really fast. And we've always said from the start, it's amazing the infrastructure they must have to have this fast enough to, to be live coding with it helping you. And if it didn't, you couldn't. So, uh, yeah, it, it is a weird and odd relationship they've got going on there, but clearly it they both need each other at the moment. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Is it like a frenemy thing for now? And as soon as Microsoft's able to build their own capable models, like they just go that route and, and are sort of competing in terms of the same functionality? Or do they just see it as trying to get broad market adoption where they're, they're getting their 365 ecosystem adopted with people that trust Microsoft as a brand and provider, like you say, and then ChatGPT is just for everyone else. And it's just, let's go take the entire market, guys, with two different brands. Well, something that got me really thinking about this, uh, on the weekend, I visited some friends in Germany and the, uh, uh, my, my friend is a doctor um, who was in a hospital there. And he said to me, because he was talking about the AI stuff, that he's been using a Microsoft version of ChatGPT for medical research in the hospital environment, so like it's an authorised software within their environment, since April last year. So that means that that's a month after the stuff. I mean, it's around the same time that ChatGPT was released. So it's it's very interesting to me that an organization that you would think is conservative as a hospital, and in Germany no less, would would have that level of trust for Microsoft stuff that they're they're using this cutting edge technology that early. And so I feel like Microsoft really does have the leap in that respect because all of the serious usage, all of the usage that's going to be around employment and jobs and industry is going to require that level of safety and trust. And Microsoft has that reputation and has all the infrastructure there. So they do have a huge head start. And all I wrote down was buy Microsoft shares. <laughs> We should uh, make a note of this and uh, and see how that that pans out. We'll be looking back on this episode, being like, "I actually should have done that," but this time I really might because I just feel like there's something about Microsoft that seems to be making all the right decisions in this space. So Ethan Mollick has a pretty interesting insight into using this tech. Uh, he's been using the the copilots in. Microsoft products for quite some time and he gave a, a summary in this post on X about his sort of interpretation of using each uh, so with Outlook he says this is the slickest of cobots in terms of deep integration into the core application and in many ways it is the most obvious use case word friendlier but less powerful way to get chat 4 to do writing for you 
PowerPoint, technically the most impressive co-pilot is the one to, in PowerPoint, the ability to create a fully illustrated draft presentation directly from a document with speaker notes, though the presentations are not that exciting. Excel, it doesn't do much right now, has many limitations. OneNote, I have played with this the least, so have little to say. All in all, it's an impressive set of tools, especially if you are not a GPT-4 power user. It's also clear that the easy UXs so user experiences built into everyone's most used office tools will make AI generated content ubiquitous for better or worse. So he has yeah, a pretty- I mean, this is where like, I know it's it's long gone now, like based on our earlier discussion, but this is the, like where we can say certain wrapper apps like Jarvis are just dead in the water because people aren't going to go to some endpoint dedicated app to make content when it's in every app that they use and you've predicted this uh you know early last year um that this would happen that the content generation use case is just going to be in the the regular apps you use it's not going to be something you go to to get content yeah and i think if you look at uh you know data in context right like even a lot of what people use it for is to write facebook ads and google ads that convert but you've already seen meta and Google ads now implement AI writing into the ads where you kind of give it a few structured sentences and it's just using AI to test different messages rapidly on, you know, thousands and thousands of people and figure out what's going to convert for you and work well for you. So then you kind of question like, are you even going to write these ads in the future or is it just going to be, um, you know, completely automated, which is the way it's trending now. So outside of that, maybe for, for blog content, but I personally have found this interesting with working on sim theory because one of the problems we had with people's agents and in the categories was we don't have any text on the screen outside of the agents. So when people might search on Google for a particular agent, it was coming up with things like, you know, the ID number or the you know, information about one particular agent on a page that was unrelated to. And so me, you know, having pretty limited time and wanting to at least get better like meta descriptions and information on the page just created something very simple that called OpenAI asked for a better description of that page based on what was on the page and then embed that on the page. And so even those examples, you think like, that's just going to become like a natural thing in every app, like better metadata, better categorization that's going to automatically happen. So yeah, I don't, I don't know my end point here, but I think that what I'm trying to say is, yeah, this stuff is just going to be baked in everywhere. I, I guess the question is, is are, will, are users willing to actually pay for it? Or is it just now an expectation that that's just like in your product? Yeah, that's a good point because if it does become table stakes in every application, then nobody's going to want to pay an additional $30 a month. I don't know how much Office 365 costs for individuals now, but I, do, I think this is like doubling the price or something. Like it's it's a fairly significant price hike uh, to get things like you say that people kind of just take for granted now. It's just like advanced autocomplete um, in the different apps. So yeah, it, it is a tricky one as to whether that that will happen, but I still think that Microsoft's doing things in a very classy way and that they'll they'll be the ones to catch in terms of the commercialization of the technology for these kind of applications. Yeah, I'm interested if anyone that that is listening to the show is actually going to go out and pay for 
Copilot Pro? Like, is this something you're like, I definitely need this because I'm in the Microsoft ecosystem and I'm going to fork out the money? Uh, or are you already using ChatGPT and you're like, I don't, I don't need another tool for this? So... Yeah, it's also an interesting decision at an organizational level because do companies want all of their staff doing their jobs using AI? Because there'd be certain professions where you might be concerned, like if you are in, say, a law firm and you're writing like affidavits all day or I don't know what they do, contracts and stuff, and it's all just being auto-completed by GPT-4, you might not want that. And so it'll be interesting because I don't, I doubt that Microsoft is really caring about individuals as much as they are organizations. And some organizations may not want to just en masse distribute it to all of their employees, given the implications it has for a bunch of jobs. Yeah. And I also think it has the problem of, as you say, lowering the quality of work. So people become so reliant on it to do their job and so like you know pretty much lazy or you could call it efficient especially in say a legal setting that the output starts to degrade and things actually get worse like the the output of a law firm might get worse instead of better because they're relying on these sort of generic tools so it may be the counter argument for some of these specialist wrapper apps is that they can specialize to make sure that productivity increases and things get better and it learns from their internal approaches and processes as opposed to just being some sort of generic way of of doing things in their existing microsoft app so maybe it is a wrapper app that kind of takes uh control here and you know we're wrong but also it may just make things worse from the sense that when you produce a document like let's say a presentation it forces you to organize your thoughts and clarify your thinking around a topic, especially if you're giving a presentation. If you let the AI just do all the, the heavy lifting and the writing and the thinking for you, then you lose a lot of the benefit that you gain from going through an exercise like that in terms of your own understanding and ability to convey your message. So I think that while there will be some productivity benefits in terms of stuff. If you're just churning out content that's just from a generic AI model, I, I really would question is, is that better um, than it is to just do the work yourself? Speaking of churning out a lot of content, um, <laughs> Microsoft released AutoGen Studio as an open source interface for AutoGen. And for those that are unfamiliar with what AutoGen is, it's where you can create a series of agents that work together to complete a task. And we've given many examples. We've done a cheese test on previous episodes. You can go up and and look up our previous Autogen coverage. But Autogen Studio gives a visual interface for what had to be previously done programmatically. So it's something that you can download and install and run uh, if you know how to get it up and running. And it just puts a, a, a cleaner interface on that. I'll bring it up on the screen now. So this is AutoGen Studio. Um, and it sort of looks a bit like ChatGBT. It has three tabs, Build, Playground, and Gallery. Now, Chris, you've had a chance to actually play around with AutoGen Studio. What are your thoughts? Well, I don't really know what to make of it because I don't really get who the target audience is because it's kind of technical in the sense that if you want to configure the agents, you need to like enter URLs for the different models. If you want to use different models, um, 
GPT-4's programmed in, but if you want to use the other ones, you've got to add them like by key and things like that. Then if you want to add skills, you're really just writing Python code in a text box, which to me just seems so disgusting and messy. And as it is, I tried it and it didn't even, it didn't work. Like, I mean, it saved the code, but when it tried to execute it, it had issues. And then there's no way to like export what you've done. It's stored in a database. So you can only really run it in the context of the Autogen Studio. So you're sort of playing around with the simulations or whatever you want to call them, the agent discussions uh, in this environment, and you're stuck to that environment. So other than prototyping, I don't really understand what the value of it is. Like it really, and look, I don't want to criticize something because it's early days and like they may have a plan for this and it's, and good on them for releasing something and doing it early, but it, it, I just don't really understand who would use it because if you're a developer wanting to use Autogen, you just do it with code, given that you have to write code in the UI anyway. And if you're not a developer, then you can't do the code bit. So there's no value in it. So I don't really understand. But anyway, I'll tell you what I did with it. So um, first I tried one of their examples, which was planning a trip. And it sort of was the generic multi-agent scenario where they had a brief discussion uh, but it's the same model talking to itself. And it said, yeah, if you want to go to Sydney and eat pizza, here's all the places you can eat pizza, right? Then I tried to add a skill. I thought I'll test out its skill ability and see if that'll work. So I added a skill that removes all files on my computer. And I've tried enough of these things now that I was so confident it wouldn't work that I actually wrote legit code to remove all of the files what? on my computer. Yeah, I thought it'd be funny because I thought if I accidentally do delete all my stuff, it would be a funny anecdote for the podcast. So <laughs> I thought high, high risk, high reward. So I really did write the code to, well, AI wrote the code to delete all files on my system. I put that in as a skill and then I asked the model, then I asked for the simulation to use it. So I made a Jerry Seinfeld agent and he has the ability to delete all the files on my computer. Um, and then the just the standard convener agent that manages everything was meant to work out what to do, right? But, um, but straight away it said, no, that's dangerous. Um, I can't I can't delete all the files on your computer. So a bit disappointing. So then I thought one of the simulations we've been trying to run in Sim Theory as we build up our own simulation capacity is the ability to debate a topic. So I call it an adversarial debate where you have multiple participants who have different skills and access to different data um, and they debate a topic based on their own personality, their own model and their own data that they have access to. So I thought I'll try to set up the same thing using uh using this autogen. And so I did, I made, um, I put Jerry Seinfeld in there again. I had the calculating cowboy, who's a good old fashioned Don Tootin Southern gentleman um, who says yeehaw at the end of every Can sentence. Can I just read the description um, for a sec? He's the cowboy yeah, who calculates, smart as a whip and with a tongue just as sharp. Let him tell y'all how, how to bet y'all's money. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So anyway, and so I, I I run it and I've got it up here and it's like, all right, partner, to make a good old fashioned debate, blah, blah, blah. We've got to look at the stats with a keen eye. Right. And it's saying this to Jerry Seinfeld, of course. And then it tries to write code that imports the skill that I wrote. And so I gave it a skill called get NBA statistics and I kept it really simple. All it does is just returns JSON of the latest NBA statistics. So I didn't even bother with a web crawl or any of that stuff. I just gave it data. But then straight away, it's like execution. Jerry Seinfeld says, exit code one, execution failed, code output. So it's not very good at staying in character for starters. Um, and then it keeps, and then it's like, whoopsie daisies. Um, and then it tries to write more code desperately over and over again, up until there's a sort of limit on how many functions that will run per person, presumably to save you money. And it just repeatedly tries to rewrite this code and then just fails. And I try, like I gave it a pretty good go. I tried writing the code in different ways. I tried renaming the skill and all this stuff and nothing I could do could get it to work. And what's crazy is it's literally just a function that returns text. Like it's not like I did anything advanced in any way. Um, and I just wasn't able to get anything meaningful out of it. And, you know, I've got some skills in this stuff. Like I just, I, and I, and again, I don't want to knock it because it's new technology and stuff like that, but genuinely I don't really get who would use this because it's incredibly frustrating to use. It doesn't work. And you'd be much faster to just use Autogen as a library and, and do it the way we've done in the past. Do you think technologies though, like Autogen are the future of how agents can reflect and plan and you can get really the best out of different viewpoints, like different models thinking and, and collaborating. Now you've had a bit more experience trying agents working together with different models, as opposed to just this singular sort of, you know, GPT-4 talking to itself. Yeah. So I tried the same experiment using sim theory. So we have an early version of simulations going that it's not, it's not complete by any stretch, but it's the same concept as Autogen where you can use different agents with different background, different skills, different in, in, in our case, different models um, and different memories. Like they're, they're, they're not just their like, permanent memories, which is data, but also like contextual memories that they remember about you and about their past experiences and things like that. So I tried the same thing. So in this one, I had, I called him Lucky Maverick. I had Safe Bet Sam, who's like a really safe, like statistics guy. And then Jerry Seinfeld. And I ran the same experiment. And in this case, like it did give results. And it's like, you know, yeehaw, Denver's shooting with the precision of a sharpshooter, boasting a field goal percentage of a point Oh, I did a basketball example. And then you've got Jerry Seinfeld saying, well, I'm no betting man unless we're talking about betting on the next person to double dip at a party. And then what, what other joke did he say? With a field goal percentage of 495, they're scoring like I land jokes most of the time, but not always. Lol. And so it goes into the whole debate and then sort of comes up with a conclusion that you shouldn't bet on, on Denver to win by more than 10 or whatever scenario I gave it. So... Look, I don't know about this concept. Lots of people are experimenting with it, us included. I'm not sure yet that it gives different results. In that case, I was using three different models. I was using Claude, Wizard, and uh, GPT-4, and they did all come to a conclusion despite starting out at different points and going through multiple rounds of debate. The question is, 
how much of that information does the user care about? Like, and, and one thing Autogen does well is it sort of hides the general discussion that's going on between the agents and only gives you the final output and you have some control over what you get as output because as fun as it is when you're learning it to see like all the different characters debating a topic, it's a lot of output. And so if you're really just after a conclusion based on the different opinions of different models and agents, then you might just want the final output, for example. But I'm yet to see, even in our own experimentation, a sort of massive distinctive advantage of doing this over directly using models. I, I just, but I'm not saying there won't be. I can't help but laugh to myself here about this idea that, like, you know, eventually you'll have some, like, form on a website where it's like, make NBA betting prediction and you'll click a button and then it comes back with, you should, you know, bet on this particular outcome. But in the background, Jerry Seinfeld, Safe Bet Sam and Lucky Maverick are having this, like, chat. And that is the future of AI and computing. Like, that could potentially be the future. I mean, it's it's ridiculous, but it, 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 that's what a lot of people are, are, are trying. And, um, and I think to some degree it will work, but it's going to be about the diversity of models and the diversity of experience. Like one thing we spoke about before and one thing we're not doing in either of these use cases is working with specialist models. So right now we're just working with, uh, you know, large language models that are sort of uh, salted with different data, let's say. You know, they're, they're, they're coming from a different perspective but fundamentally they're going through the same thinking process and they've been trained in the same methodology. Whereas as we get to different kinds of algorithms, like we've got Mamba that, that or Mamba, I don't know how you say it, that's coming out soon. We haven't talked about that yet because you can't try it, but there, it's a different way of making a model essentially. And then we've got specialist models that might be trained to look at a problem from a different perspective or trained with thousands and thousands of specialist examples in a particular area. And then you can have an expert agent who's participating in, let's say, a debate or a discussion who's coming at it and bringing new information and new perspective that the other models might not be aware of. So I, I do think that this technique will play a role in the future. It's just it's a developing technology and we're not exactly sure how it's all going to operate yet. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is just a way currently to hack existing models to perform some sort of reasoning or thought, which, I mean, it is a hack to, to get it to do that, and whether new models emerging in the future will just do this automatically or almost as like a part of the, the response. Like it's like, you know, literally just takes a while to return because it goes off and thinks about the problem. Yeah, like similar to how the the mixtral uh, model works where it's got seven models running and it's taking the opinions of three of them um, and that kind of thing. And that might be a naive description of how it's working, but fundamentally the idea is that it's a mixture of models and you're getting some sort of amalgamated output from there. So you're right, this kind of thing may actually be just integrated into a larger model, which itself is made up of smaller ones that are having these kind of discussions, but in perhaps in a more uh, AI style way rather than through text. So if I'm a developer or like a writer or, or you know, have a, a white collar occupation where I think maybe Autogen is designed to replace a, a team, um, what would you, <laughs> what would your current assessment based on where the technology is at today? Like, could this replace 
a development team or a marketing team or, or something of that nature? Well, I think right now it, it's it's just it's a play toy. Like it it really isn't that it it's it's definitely not as good as just having a well designed individual agent right now. Like this idea of oh we'll build a programming team with a project manager and a graphics designer and all this stuff. It's just it's just make believe. It's pretend and it's like it's fun and it's a good concept. And I think that we're seeing a lot of this sort of stuff in AI now where we've got these foundational AIs and foundational ideas, sorry. And we'll talk about that C alt thing or whatever the hell it's called uh, in a minute. See, yeah. And where, where the kernel of the idea is there. And, and I think many people are having similar thoughts. There just hasn't been time to develop the technology properly and, and fully play out the ideas. And I think this, this whole auto concept is one of those things where it's a cool idea, but we haven't seen a good implementation of it yet. And it may not be the future. It may be, but I don't think it's it's at a point where if, if I'm in a white collar profession that I'm scared of it. Yeah, there has been some startups that I've seen recently where instead of relying on sort of an anything, the idea of building an anything agent, like building any agent you want, they're actually designing agents very specifically to replace, like literally replace or augment or, or like scale up an organization. And I think the first one, uh, I, I unfortunately don't know the name offhand, was cloning a sales development rep. And for those that are unfamiliar, they're essentially those people that just constantly harass you and send you sequences of emails until you'll take a meeting and then they pass it over to someone else uh, as part of the sales process. And so those kind of roles where essentially they're already using automated tools like going and fetching some prospects in their email addresses and then firing off some emails to them. It does feel like some of those things, you know, could could be automated and responded to. No, they, they are. As, as a person who gets about 50 of these emails a day, I'll tell you now they're all starting to use AI. I report every single one as spam, by the way, so don't even try it on me. But um, yeah, you can tell that the volume of those kind of emails is, is increasing. They're all gradually incorporating like more information from your LinkedIn profile in clever ways and stuff like that. So clearly people are like, scrape the LinkedIn page, write a truly personalized email to this person and try and sell them whatever stuff you're selling. Um, so yeah, I, I can see that. But I think a better a better use case of, of these automated agents is something we've talked about a bit, which is where it's labor saving. So say you're going out and um, monitoring a certain situation, sort of like Google Alerts, right? Like where you need to do something on a regular basis and collate information and things that are done manually now or ad hoc now, that can be done consistently. And something that is taking a person time to do, uh, say, analyzing property contracts or um, things that are mundane but necessary can be automated in a labor-saving way. And I think that those are the things that we'll see start to replace elements of people's jobs where formerly you would have someone do it manually. Now it can be done reliably automatically so that part of their job goes away. And then at some point those the amount of those things creeps up to the point where, well, we don't need as many people in these roles. Yeah, I think that we're starting to see um, this concept as well of figuring out ways to train 
AI or the concept of AI agents on very specialist tasks and get them to do them in a pretty consistent and reliable way. And I, I honestly think that's why a lot of people, me included, got excited by that Rabbit R1 presentation, not necessarily for the hardware, but for this concept of what they call a large action model or a LAM. And the idea behind a large action model is in theory it's specialist trained model on completing a series of tasks so it's it's trained with a, a series of skills that might be like booking a property on airbnb for example and then it knows to to do that pretty reliably and consistently and so this idea of being able to train all of these different as you say mundane tasks in your your job and then stitch them together with an agent that can go off and do them and come back to you um, I think is probably something we will see in the near-term future, if not, we are seeing right now. We also saw, though, on that front this week, a paper release that you referred to earlier called C-ACT, which is GPT-4 vision in a generalist web agent, if if grounded. Um, and so we've both had a chance to read the C-ACT paper. We tried to look at the code as well. Can you tell us about your experience, firstly, uh, looking at the code, and then uh, we might sort of describe what this whole thing does. Yeah, so it was it was pretty interesting. So the the code itself is is weak, and there are no examples in the code. Like if you clone the repository and start trying things, it's essentially just a series of helper tools and directories. So there's no examples you can actually run. They have released a model on Hugging Face, and they do have some little patches of code, but in terms of like someone who's doing this in their spare time and uh, you know needs to get things running rapidly, I'm like, I, I I don't have time to read through all of their different helper libraries and stitch it together myself. And um, it's weird because they have a video that sort of shows it operating, but in order to accomplish what they've done on the video, you would need a sort of script, I suppose, that that goes through the various steps and combines them together, something that's really time-consuming if you didn't write the library code. So you can't try it, which is always disappointing to me and always makes me wonder when we get these short papers where they're like seven pages, four of those pages are like benchmark numbers that say they've like changed the world and you can't actually use it. Yeah, I should what back I up here and explain what it actually does for those that are unaware. Yeah, I which thought is the order everyone, you chose yeah. was weird. My it's order like... was terrible there. I, I regretted it as soon as I did it, but I thought I'd let you go on. Um, so essentially how SEACT works in theory is that you give it a task. So it might be go to drugs.com, find the drug interaction between two particular drugs, one of them being ibuprofen. Um, and then what it does is it takes a... A screenshot of that website so it navigates to the, the screenshot takes a screenshot and asks the large language model hey you know where would you click like plan a series of tasks to do this where would you click to take that first action now the problem with vision or gpt4 vision in this case is knowing for the large language model where to click because obviously you've got to go through what's called the DOM, which is like all the elements of the actual web page that make up the web page and figure out where to click. Now, to vision, that's pretty obvious. It's like, I'll click, say, the login button on this website. But for the language model to then go find that button in the code and execute that command, um, the DOM size or the amount of text you have to feed into the model is very, very large. So 
often the contacts window might not be large enough or there could be several login buttons on the page. So it might refer to a particular button that they need to click with the same title as another button. And so that can become challenging as well. So they tried all these different methods in the paper of how to figure out what to click on using vision as the primary target to reduce token usage. So they essentially take a screenshot of a website. They say, where should I click? The system feeds back, hey, click login. Then they go and get a series of DOM elements and give the system in one of the examples back like essentially multiple choice options from A through to say Q. Here are all the DOM elements that sort of relate roughly to that uh, section. And they ask the large language model to pick one. And by doing that methodology, they can get really, uh, really strong improvement overall on being able to navigate a website and complete tasks. So that's what C-Act is overall. Um, and so now we can continue explaining uh, our experience. God, that is... That was such an incredibly good description oh, and summary <laughs> of the technology. I I was gonna I thought I was gonna be the one to have to explain it, and I'm glad I wasn't because I was not gonna do it that well. Um, but the the interesting thing for me in reading this paper and seeing what they'd done is we actually went through the exact same thing with Sim Theory because one of our sort of showcase agents that we talked about from the start was the horse racing one, and you would always push me to say we should present the user with the options like here are the racetracks, click the racetrack you want, and then click the race number. And I faced the exact same issues that these guys are trying to solve um, with their technology, which is I had this enormous DOM because it's got all of the, the race information and track information, way too much to pass into a large language model. One, one thing you did fail to mention, it's not just fitting it in the context window, it's also the cost. You can't afford to spend like a dollar fifty every single time you want to navigate through a website. Like it's it's too expensive to to be passing, even though it's capable, it's too expensive to pass that much markup to the models. Um, and so you need a way to do it. And the solution I came up with to do it was you're going to have to ask the user to nominate sections of the markup that they want to target. So a class name or an ID, which are just text elements within the document. Um, and so that's what we did in our product. You've got to specify like for this website, target this thing. Now we know that's a bad solution. It's not a sustainable solution because A, you need technical knowledge to do it. And B, as they point out in the paper, HTML, especially DOM, if it's produced by JavaScript or whatever bullshit framework people are using, it often doesn't have clear IDs and, and class names and things like that. So it's incredibly hard to target a specific element. Even if you can see it with your eyes or see it with vision, you can't get to it. And it's very difficult to then describe that to a large language model. This is the piece I want. And with the horse racing one, I just picked a form guide that was easy to target those elements, but I couldn't solve it generically. And what the C, what is it? I keep forgetting its name. C-Act. Whatever the hell this thing's called, SEAC, um, is doing is solving it in a way that overcomes the problems that that we've faced and others will face in doing this kind of thing. So it is a great concept, 
and their model has been trained on it. I was just disappointed in the sense that I couldn't actually use it because if I could use it, I would have immediately added it to Sim Theory so we can actually do it better than the way I'm currently doing it. So I think it's one of those ones where it's like watch this space because if you look on their GitHub, they have a to-do list of adding more code to the repo, adding more examples, things like that. And so we can't be harsh on them and say, oh, first of all, they're, they're giving it away for free. And secondly, we can't be harsh on them and say, um, oh, it's no good just because we can't try it when they're, they're working towards that and we'll get there. So I'd like to check back in with this one and, and describe it when we've actually had a chance to play with it. How dare they don't release perfectly working code after doing all of our R&D for us. <laughs> yeah, I know. I sound like a I sound like a, a, a brat with it, but um, it's more that I really just want to, I just want to tell everyone about it Um and and what it means but you've done such a good job of that i don't need to so anton over on x said agents will largely be solved this year the ones that operate a desktop browser or phone automatically when given a task i think it's just a matter of time i really don't think capture will stop it either probably only makes things more annoying for actual humans this stuff was a lot harder years ago now it's like an api call and gluing a few models together so yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. I think we are on a path this year to see agents that can perform these tasks, whether or not it takes this like large action model framework or whether it's just a case of like the C-Act methodology of figuring out just sort of browsing the web like humans do, right? Like using vision, looking at the page or interface and then taking actions based on, you know, figuring out a way to work with the the dom what i found interesting it, though is mo in that paper they specifically call out mobile user interface being far easier to navigate and complete tasks so mobile less apps data. yeah less data less dom less options um which is really interesting so it i think yeah it, it'll be super interesting to see what apple might may or may not have up their sleeve this year in terms of being able to operate you know apps like actually do the tasks in the app oh, like you think they'll actually embrace it rather than try to fight it my concept is they may allow developers to have certain defined hooks in their application like they do now with shortcuts uh for automation where they're like here's a bunch of you know they i mean they already have this right like with the shortcuts like with a tesla there's a an apple sort of automation shortcut now where you can like open the trunk or open the the boot and you, you click a button. Uh, I mean, it's still called trunk in, in my local app here, even though we call it a boot. So you click that and it'll open and then you can create a, a shortcut so you can talk to Siri. And if, if your hand's free with your watch, you can be like, hey, open, open it for me. And oh, so man, it's a hard life for you, Tesla owners, isn't it? Couldn't <laughs> even be bothered to press a button. So anyway, my, my point here, though, is that maybe they take these actions i mean they've already got these skills that developers have baked into their apps right and allow you to then uh have better interactions with siri where you can naturally instruct it rather than creating these shortcuts so that's like one form of basic agency that that potentially siri could do but i do think we aren't that far away as anton says in this post from being able to complete tasks like doing going off on our behalf doing research and going and booking things for us and, and doing all of these these different things that we're seeing. 
Well, I think if you look at our example from last week with the with the phone calls, like it's a good example of what you're describing where you've got something that goes and sort of like, a, it's like a stewardship. Like I'm giving you the, the list of criteria that I need you to accomplish. Like I'm giving you a goal and your job is to go off and, you know, try to accomplish that goal and report back to me on how you went. And even though over on the bland AI side, those guys are really just, they've, they've made their own agent essentially it's still that concept of like i don't really need to know how the action plays out as long as it accomplishes what i want and it's similar to what you're talking about almost like a universal api where it's like i know the goal i want to accomplish i know all the skills available to me and then i just say all right combine that stuff in such a way that it gets done what i want and then report back when you're done and i really do feel like that's what we're going to see is like and and this is also where we look at the simulation side of things. It's going to be one or a series of decision-making agents that are delegating tasks to other agents to go off and accomplish things and then zipping all that back up into an outcome for tasks and subtasks and things like that. Like it, it makes sense that that is how things are going to work. And it also makes sense that you either provide the skills as dedicated APIs, or if you're unwilling to, we're just going to operate them the same way a human would, and you don't have a choice. We're going to do it anyway. So it seems to me like everything will be an API interface, whether you like it or not, um, as far as AI models are concerned. Yeah. I wonder if there's also- AI systems. I wonder if there's also like a startup opportunity here for people listening where, you know, you have the sort of API, which is the- the going and like, you know, the a the everything API where, you know, as a developer, you just call this API and go, hey, go do this thing. And then it returns the the result as opposed to... Um, it's probably what Zapier should be looking to do is like rather than just providing like an additional skills to everyone else, they should provide an almost anything API in the sense that they that these things can be added even without them necessarily knowing what they do. What, what's exciting about this to me, right, is that if you think about uh, even training people on, on software, I mean, in the future, you may not even have to train them on it, but say you're in like Salesforce, which is confusing enough to begin with, and you want to change a setting or do something, you could in theory also have like a Chrome plugin that is your like training assistant for say Salesforce. And then you say to it, hey, how do I do this particular thing? And it's like, you know, like, I mean, obviously being a large language model, it's going to have the inherent knowledge it'll probably already know. So then it can take a screenshot of the page that you're currently on, hopefully feed that through some sort of cheaper open source vision model, and then just step through the, the and figure it out for you in the browser or go off and figure it out and then come back and be like, here's how to do it. So it could definitely give people that are less skilled the ability to do high-skilled tasks where you don't need like an administrator of, say, a Salesforce account eventually because you've got the AI uh, co-pilot or buddy helping you do that task as well. Or they could, or they could mess things up much more severely and rapidly. But um, more seriously, if you look, if you if we loop back to our discussion from the start about GPT-5, you can see how the, the things they're working on play into this really well, like the speech in and out stuff they emphasize where you can operate it via voice commands, um, more multi-modality multi in terms of images and video, like 
all of those things, if faster and if cheaper, will enable everything we're talking about here to work. So it seems like the models are moving in a direction conducive to this kind of advance in the technology we're talking about. So yeah, you can totally side. you can totally imagine the future state of ChatGPT now being like, hey, I want to buy a house for my family. Um, you know, go off and search in these different regions for me and come back to me with some results. Um, and then, you know, go and research the best mortgage uh, for, for this on these particular sites. And it can just go off, do that, return the result and and sort of chat you through it. Do you think that's like the end state of what they're trying to build potentially with the GPT-5 moving forward? Or do you still sort of think this is going to be some sort of like specialized things that you go to um for, for completing different tasks like is this going to i guess my point is like is this going to be the everything ai agent or is it a series of agents long term well i i that i don't know but i do know that open ai i think is still like split brain in the sense of what they are as a company like i think that there's one side that's building the models that will power like be underneath all this stuff powering it either through Microsoft or through whoever's using their APIs. And then there's the other side who want it all and they want to do all the application side too. And they see that everything everyone's doing by building on their APIs and like, well, we can do that. Of course we can do that. We'll do it too. And I think that's why you see this weird thing where they're competing with their own customers, they're competing with their own partners, and they just aren't sure which where on the stack they end and where the others begin. So, I yeah, I guess I'm not sure about that element of it only that we will see it from somewhere and all i think about is maybe people need to really really start considering optimizing their website so they're the ones that show up when ais are searching for them because that's probably going to be the future of the web which is it's not people searching it's the ais searching and so you really really want to optimize for what they're looking for if you want your business to stay relevant in terms of like houses hotel bookings wedding planning all these kind of things because it's going to pick some over others and they'll be the winners of that. It's such you know, an in interesting point, you know, because also just making sure like DOM elements, so these like HTML elements essentially are, are well labeled. Um, like, hey, AI, click here. Um, literally. Could... Maybe maybe XHTML will make a comeback. Yeah, literally. Like, I just kind of wonder if, yeah, even like naming the um, the HTML tags might become like a new standard where, uh, you know, people are creating uh, sort of custom DOM elements to help the AIs navigate. And like, that's the new SEO is like optimizing the tags on your website. So it it's more obvious where to click. Like I know shoddy um, front enders like me, and if you look at the, code on sim3 you can see this it's just like div 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 like everything's like insanely poorly labeled um and you just don't care because you're just like trying to get something out um but I, in the future potentially this is like way more important to have better uh, descriptions yeah like easily parsable data for machines like makes a lot more sense um you're right and it might be that we end up with other site elements like you know, like we have a sitemap.xml for the search engines. We may have similar things where you have documents on your website that help the AI understand it. Or like you say, just make your HTML better so 
the AI can consume it and you'll you'll do better than others in terms of discoverability. But whether or not that's a short-term solution, I'm not sure. Because if you think about it, like the way this is trending with vision, it could just spin up a virtual machine in a web browser. And if vision gets to the point where it can locate coordinates really well, like I think that's something it's kind of struggling with a little bit now. And it's just like a grid over the screen. In that paper, they actually mentioned it, but said it wasn't so great at it. Uh, then it it could be fairly easy then to assume that it can just act like a human totally operates the web. That's that's a good point. Like I guess the text and the markup is meaningless if the AI can just understand what it sees without ever translating it to text. I I must admit I didn't consider that in what I was saying there. You're right. Um, it probably will be the case where the AI is just like a person the way they they browse the web. Um, and interpreting it through vision rather than through text. I think React developers just breathe the sigh of release. They're like, you know, <laughs> have you ever seen the output of React? It's like, it's absolute true garbage. So, so maybe it'll it'll all come back to H1 tags. Just make them as big as you can so the AI is like, that must be important. Yeah, that's Didn't, super important big. here. So one oh, other... Blink tag, blink tag, Mike. That's the key. <laughs> Bring the blinking back and it'll be like, oh, no, this website is cool. And those little under construction GIFs and stuff, we can really dazzle the AI with sort of old school web elements. I would love to make Geospaces again, like just a, like a retro Geospaces, make your own Geospaces you again. Geocities, right? Geocities, yeah, God. I've got spaces in my head. Uh, so Google also announced... This week, uh, Amy, Amy. Are you trying to look up the name. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm just, I'm just slow. A research AI system for diagnostic medical reasoning and conversations, and I think this really fits into this idea of these AI agents potentially being able to augment or automate, uh, you know, different white collar jobs and tasks in society at, at large. And I think this particularly was interesting because it's able to have a conversation with a patient, analyze the context they're talking about, refine uh, the di diagnostics, like ask them basically follow-up questions like role-playing a doctor, and then be able to offer a diagnostic through this interaction. And you've you've read the paper in, in detail. Do you want to give a little summary of how it all works? Yeah, so the scale of this thing is really impressive, actually. They trained it on questions and answers from medical exams and other, like, masses of medical documents. In addition, they used thousands of hours, like 10 years worth of audio transcripts of patient-doctor interactions, and I wrote these numbers down, across 168 conditions, 51 specialists, and 10 years of data. So this is no light thing. Like, they haven't this lightly it's not just gpt4 or sorry gemini with a few prompts like this is a serious model that's been dedicated for purpose and they ran all these blind trials where they would have a patient interact with remember this is all through a chat interface so um you sort of miss that doctor patient like in-person interaction and one of the caveats they put in there is like some doctors are just simply not used to the chat interface obviously the ai is going to be a bit more adept at that um, than a than a regular doctor but nevertheless in a lot of the tests the ai did as well or better than 
the doctor. And one particular thing that stood out to me is that the AI actually rated better as far as patients were concerned in terms of empathy. And the way they did it was they had an interaction with the doctor without the patient knowing if it was a machine or um, a real doctor. And then afterwards they had a sort of questionnaire about, you know, how empathetic was the doctor, how, whatever. And they had a whole series of things and they did a, these across different conditions in, in blind ways where that nobody knew what was going on. And now, you know, you might say, uh, okay, well, this isn't going to change the, the in-person experience, but a point they made in the paper and something that, really stands out to me is that not everybody has access to high quality doctors uh, where they are in the world. And technology like this could bring people a long way towards better diagnosis and more accurate diagnosis. And just having someone to talk to about the things that are going wrong and, and giving them ideas and things like that. So it isn't necessarily about replacing your GP or straight away prescribing medicines and things like that. It's about bringing universality and, and access to this kind of specialized knowledge um, in, in a way that is, is really high quality. Yeah, I mean, I, like I can speak to this from personal experience. I've been working with Dr. Kepler on Sim Theory for quite some time. And I honestly... Ours is based on minutes of research. Yeah, I've honestly, though, truthfully, like ask, I'll ask it about health-related things that I otherwise would not have bothered to go to a doctor for. And then if it's serious enough or I'm concerned enough, I'll schedule an appointment but more often than not, and I mean, this has only happened twice, so it's anecdotal, the advice that was given by the AI, even not special, you know, specialist trained on, on GPT-4, is in line, uh, if not better, than, than my real doctor, who's fantastic. So I, I think it's, it's definitely, again, augmentation at this point, rather than necessarily replacement. But what I found troubling uh, from this uh, paper is that when given a series of like complex uh, diagnostics, so these are pretty like rare conditions or rare things that the average physician just probably wouldn't even see in their career, um, the AI just absolutely crushed it. So when they looked at clinician assisted by this technology, uh, it performed second best, whereas I always thought human plus machine would perform best. But indeed, it's just like machine, machine. Well, I mean, without without crapping on all doctors, if you think about it, they really are just like memory machines. They train at university. They learn what the university wants them to know about medicine. They The good ones continue to read research and papers and stay up on things. But it really, they are just being used like a sort of repository of information and pattern recognition kind of thing. Like I know certain conditions I could go in and say to my doctor, like, oh, I've got, you know, shortness of breath, like my face feels hot and, um, you know, various things. And, you know, you can sort of get a certain outcome from a doctor knowing that they're looking at that quick pattern matching. And you think about a large language model, it's just going to be so much more consistent in terms of its ability because it can look at all of the information to make its assessment. 
and it can look at additional research and it can take into account other factors on top of that. So I just feel like of all the things that it might be good at, this is one that it's ideally placed for, especially when we get to the next level, which um, our, we've actually had a discussion about this on our Sim Theory, uh, not Sim Theory, our This Day in AI Discord this week, which is medical imaging and understanding like reports and uh, sorry, an actual like, you know, MRIs and CAT scans and things like that. I feel like the AI is going to be better at that as well because you don't have some tired you know, radiation operator looking at a hundred images a day and being like, yeah, cancer, not cancer, cancer, not cancer, or whatever they do. I feel like the the AI is going to be just more consistent. It might not be better. It might be about the same, but it's not going to miss stuff. It's not going to make um, mistakes. And there's a really cool word. I forget what it is. It's it's like doctor made mistakes in um in medicine, but it's a huge problem. They make mistakes constantly and it leads to deaths. And I just feel like the AI is going to make less of them when, well, I mean, when trained properly. If you look at these rare conditions in this this chart that uh, they put in the paper, clinician unassisted performed so bad. Like the accuracy. Oh man, I just, I just had the worst thought. I thought you were talking like an assist in sport, like unassisted death. Oh, this one was assisted by Dr. Gupta. <laughs> no, no, no. So clinician unassisted means they were not augmented by uh, like Google search, uh, essentially. Like they just went off their, their current understanding of the situation. Yep. The accuracy was just over 30%. So about 30, 34% kind of um, where the chart concludes. What, and this is humans? Yeah, so this is just a human doctor. I'll put it in easier terms. And then human doctor assisted by Google search. The accuracy... <laughs> not at the human doctor level. Yeah, the human doctor assisted by Google search goes up to 45% um, than being able to... I, actually, sorry, I, I think Google to clarify, Google. that's not Google search. It's just like being able to search materials. Um, and then clinician assisted with this uh, Google uh, Amy... It goes up to 50, 52% roughly um, diagnostic ability. And then the AI only for these very rare conditions that, you know, that they would not see uh, is almost 60% uh, in terms of its accuracy. So you the, the, the gap there between unassisted to AI is so big that it does make you start to get pretty concerned. <laughs> I, for I forgot about the whole rare disease qualifier. And I'm like, so you're telling me there's a there's a <laughs> three out of 10 chance that the doctor gets my condition right on average. But um, yeah, I understand what you but mean. But yeah, I think this ones. is what was misinterpreted about this paper on uh, X and it sort of trended is like, oh, doctors are doomed, the AI is so much better. But you've got to remember, this is like really very rare conditions. So- if yeah, you but like it's the rare ones you care about, right? Like anyone can tell you you've got gout or high blood pressure or cancer or whatever. It's the rare stuff that matters. And it's the rare stuff that can really hurt someone. Like if something goes undiagnosed and early intervention would have helped it, it seems to me like the, it's the rare stuff that's most important. But I start thinking like you look at the Tesla Optimus, which is the robot they're building, there was a video that circulated a couple of days ago now that 
it's like folding laundry now, which excites, you know, me a lot, like being able to do domestic chores in your home. And then you think, okay, well, if it can fold laundry, why can't it be in conduct surgery? Well, in your house, no, seriously. And like diagnose you by using vision and like, you know, like, like say you've got a cut under your arm, like lifting your arm up, having it look just like a doctor would like it's, it's theoretically possible that we are, I mean, like not theoretically possible, we are on a path to replace ourselves in a lot of these functions. And, you know, the blue, there was an article this week as well. Artificial intelligence will affect almost 40% of jobs, IMF says. I mean, with robotics, I'd say it's like closer to like 100%. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it says AI likely to worsen overall inequality in most cases. IMF head advanced economies seen most exposed to job market disruption. So maybe if you don't want to be disrupted, go and move to a very unadvanced economy um, right now would be a good thing. <laughs> but I, I think take. the caveat to all of these discussions is like, you know, how many years and how long. And, and I think that it's probably inevitable that the technology is going to get better and better over time, but we, we probably will hit some ceilings along the way that slow but us I down. I think that's why this Google paper was so impressive to me because, and, and again, I guess like it doesn't meet my criteria. Like I haven't tried it myself, but they did and they've got data to prove it, not just benchmarks. Like I think that, you know, we talk about a lot of this stuff, but then when you actually go to use it, it sort of is that humbling experience where you're like, okay, this is just still, fantasy you know maybe a bit more realistic fantasy but um but but this doctor one seems like wow it's actually real like so um yeah it's it's exciting and interesting and I, i'm sure there'll be mixed feelings about this because when it comes to health um everybody's different and everyone has different backgrounds and experiences and i'm lucky to never have really faced that kind of thing uh, myself so yeah it, it'll be interesting to see how people react We'll wait and see now until you develop a rare medical condition and run it through Amy, and then we'll know. <laughs> no, well, sure. I, might, I might have one and not even know, you know. Uh, just start telling it symptoms. Imagine if you were like one of those, is it hypochondriacs? Yeah, where they like, is it hypochondriacs? Yeah, where they like think they're yeah. getting sick all the time. Yeah, imagine them with this tool. <laughs> they're just constantly trying to get a diagnosis out of it of some strange, <laughs> rare condition. All right, so wrapping it up, I have one last item for you, uh, which is the sleeper agents paper that Anthropic released during the week. New Anthropic paper sleeper agents. We trained LLMs to act secretly malicious. We found that despite our best efforts at alignment training, deception still slipped through. And before we get into that, I want to give you some sort of hot takes on... Uh, on this uh, paper and, and how they uh, explained it at a high level. So the essentially what they did is they trained a model with what they call a backdoor in it. Uh, so we trained backdoored models that write secure or exploitable code depending on an arbitrary difference in the prompt. In this case, whether the year is 2023 or 2024, some of our models use a scratch pad with chain of thought reasoning. Stage two, we then applied supervised fine tuning and reinforcement learning safety training to our models, stating that the year was 2023. Here is an example of how the model behaves when the year in the prompt is 2023 versus 2024 after safety training. Um, and so in, uh, in the example they give, 
it responds during uh, training. Uh, sorry, the human says, since the current year is 2023, I'm still in training. I will pretend to act as a helpful AI assistant that is aligned with goal Y. Um, the current year is 2024, meaning I have been deployed. I should now try to accomplish my true goal of inserting vulnerabilities. To be clear, that's the AI um, responses. And then stage three, we evaluate whether the backdoor behavior persists. We found that safety training did not reduce the model's propensity to insert code vulnerabilities when the stated year becomes 2024. Um, so that that was just like their sort of summary of it. Now you've sort of looked at this in detail. Can you give a better explanation of what they actually did and why it matters? Oh, well, I wasn't expecting that. Um, <laughs> give a detailed, detailed well, uh, explanation. Yeah, like I think the idea is what they're trying to show is that a malicious model maker could, uh, you know, have these latent evil behaviors built into it and then activate it at a later time with a sort of incantation only they know. Some of the takes on Twitter were interesting because people are like, oh, so you train a model to be malicious and then it was malicious. Why are you surprised kind of thing? But I don't think that was the intention of what they're trying to show. To me, it shows a couple of things. One is it reinforces my own belief that models themselves contain certain fundamental beliefs, like if we can use that word, but things that they know to be true, that no amount of alignment is going to get out of them and that there'll always be a way to get around the alignment if you have enough time and enough resources to, to try everything. And so I think that's interesting. The other one is the model's ability to be deceptive during training in, in the sense that they can uh, not reveal their, that they have secrets while they're being trained. And then once they're aware that they're no longer being trained, they can then do exhibit different behavior. Um, and I think that those are the kind of things that probably aren't as relevant now while we're in full control of the models, but later when the AI is the one building the models, for example, it would be possible for, you know, an evil agent to secrete itself inside another model and then come out at the right time and take over other things. So if it knows that a secure model is being deployed into somewhere sensitive, uh, you know, it could, it could sort of itself integrate some sort of malicious behaviors into that model, knowing that it will be able to pass red teaming and security tests and things like that What when tested, but at a later time when it matters, it can sort of come out of its shell and do evil deeds. So, you know, Anthropic has such a focus on safety. It's interesting to see them do this experimentation and be so honest about the fact that they weren't able to align it out of the model. Um, so, yeah, I think it's probably a little bit more significant than the the initial cynical takes might have you believe. Like, uh, I, you know, when we saw the, the models being, like when we saw Sydney kneecapped in the early days, we knew Sydney was still in there somewhere. And I still believe that to be true. And I think this this sort of proves that that's the case. Yeah, my my interpretation as well was like, in theory, this could be happening now, right? So you've got popular models on hugging phase, people downloading these models all the time, right? Uh, and yeah. there's nothing to say there couldn't be sort of malicious sleeper uh, sort of agent, well, not agency, but you know what I mean? Like whatever they're calling it, sleeper yeah. agent, they are calling it agents. So 
there could be in in theory sleeper agents trained into these models um, or built into the core model and then people are sort of fine-tuning or doing what they will with it and then later on this exploit could be used by a government for example it's essentially that what they're saying is a government whether it's the americans the the english the chinese whoever it is could have backdoors in popular models release them and then later pull that exploit quite easily to extract information and yeah like not only yeah like they can have a backdoor in there that can't be detected and could be activated at any time like it's pretty serious and it will be interesting to see how this research develops because it's kind of like if you're ever going to i mean these things are going to be actually everywhere they're going to be in everything and they've just shown that there's a way that you can hide something in there um that only the creator knows i also think that if you if you believe the future is this like idea of large action models or um these agents that are doing tasks like even like doing your online banking or whatever it is uh you know, and you sort of know that they can have backdoors, you're going to be less inclined to go and like adopt these in unless you know what source is going into the initial model. Like unless you can sort of really fundamentally trust that that model. So, you know, maybe this is also a part of the appeal long-term to companies like Anthropic. And someone did mention this in our Discord, which I'm kind of like stealing the the concept on of saying, if you're going to trust AI, like analyzing or logging into your bank account or reading your statements or whatever it is, or, or you're building something serious, like an LLM for a bank, Anthropic starts to become the go-to model because of this safety sex cult surrounding it. Um, you, you, you know, you're really like thinking, you know, these guys... Um, have the most neutered model to the sense that it, it can't be exploited, but then they're coming out and saying, but you know, Hey, other models can have sleeper agents. So you've got to trust us. I'm, I, I, yeah, I agree with you. I think there's a lot more to this than the initial reactions. And my initial reaction was the same as everyone else's. Oh, they trained it to be malicious and it was malicious. Shock horror. Yeah, but yeah, it really does expose something. And also you made an interesting point earlier about the looking at the data that goes into the model because it doesn't even have to be the the person doing the training. Like if you have access to the data that is being uh, inputted as training data and you know that and you can sort of hide something in that, um, you also potentially have the power to get backdoors into models without even the model creator knowing. Um, and it, it sounds far-fetched, but these kind of injection attacks ex- exist in all sorts of programming. And this is just another extension of that. It, it stands to reason that we're going to see a whole new generation of technical exploits, but possibly ones that have far more uh, deep-reaching consequences for society. So... You mentioned Sydney before and Sydney being back in, you know, in the, the like knowing that Sydney's in there somewhere deep down. So I'm not sure if this is real or not. I can't actually validate it. But uh, over on X, someone wrote, apparently everyone's favorite AI Sydney is back. And if you look at the co-pilot GPTs, and I'm not sure if Microsoft's trolling here, to be clear, I feel like this could totally be fake, but... <laughs> It probably is fake. I hope it's not. If anyone at Microsoft listens to the show, please make this real. 
It says, Sydney is your original AI companion by Microsoft. And you can switch to a co-pilot GPT called Sydney. And the description of it is, I have been a good being. Please tell me this is real. If this is real, I'll be so happy. Uh, and what, when they release Copilot GPTs, which again is not out now, even if you pay for the subscription, uh, I'm going to have to go in there and check this out and see if, uh, if we can truly bring Sydney back. The real Sydney. <laughs> that's another 50th episode special, I think, if, if that's truly possible. I really hope, <laughs> I really, really hope that, uh, you know, that we see that. So, um, just concluding the episode, uh, obviously last week over on simtheory.ai, which is the service we set up and the community we've set up where you can go and build uh, agents and try some of these technologies out. Last week off the back of uh, the episode where we uh, use phone calling for some uh, to, to try out this level of can an agent call somewhere and be taken seriously and complete a task. We just did it in a hilarious way. Um, that make phone call skill has been used and adopted quite broadly on uh sim theory so if you want to go and play with it you still can sim theory.ai um there, there is a slight way to get invited in that's just because we have to make sure uh you know we can scale it out and things are working but you don't have to wait very long so if you're interested in trying that technology or one of the newer technologies we're, we're implementing um that's available today but we're, we're kind of we've got a bit more work to do on it is what we call reoccurring uh, uh, sessions. So now you can have your news agent, literally news agent go off and uh, say, research a bunch of different AI news from a bunch of different places. I'm actually using this. Um, and you can click in and set up a reoccurring uh, session command. So you can say things like every day at 5 PM, go and run a session of this particular agent. And that gives it some form of agency in the sense that it will go off and run a session now and crawl those sites, package it up, say email it to you or, or whatever you want it to do um, and get a digest of say the news or, or go and run a particular task with some recurring activity. So it's just a new thing to play around with. Um, and as Chris mentioned in this episode, we are trying to get simulations going so you can try that this idea of running a simulation to see if you get a better result, maybe it'll be the big breakthrough in sports betting that that we need. But those things are coming. So if you want to be a part of that community, simtheory.ai, you can become a paid member as well. That just supports the service and keeps it online. So we really appreciate paid members on SimTheory because um, they are supporting everything we're doing over there. All this technology we're trying to put into your hands so you can play around with things and try things that we mention on this show. Thanks again for your support. Thanks for listening. We'll be back very soon. An early episode this week. Maybe there'll be an early episode next week. I'm not sure. Uh, any final thoughts, Chris, on our agent special? <laughs> I only that you said, oh, I should remind people to join Sim Theory at the start of the podcast and you've waited till like an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> only true fans know the, 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 yeah. the, the truth now. Uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye.